Next up on the Mutual Audio Network, fiction from our future. The following audio drama is rated PG-13, suggesting that children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. The Leviathan Chronicles. An audio adventure. The story thus far. Oberlin has escaped. After being held hostage and tortured by Wit Roberts aboard the hidden airship Idrisil, Oberlin fought a desperate battle with Wit, setting the Idrisil ablaze in the process. The giant ship crashed near the mountains north of Beijing. Oberlin and Wit were both badly wounded in their struggle, but Oberlin managed to escape with a briefcase that had been closely guarded by Wit. The powers of the briefcase are unknown, but Wit claimed it allowed him to speak with gods. Oberlin jettisoned from the Idrisil in an escape pod that landed in a rice paddy owned by several Chinese farmers. But before the farmers could apprehend Oberlin to hand him over to the authorities, he is rescued by a mysterious woman named Mai Li, who proceeds to tell him how the Chinese government discovered a powerful star stone hidden by monks in Tibet. To heal Oberlin's injuries, Miley rushes him to Sanctuary, a secret network of sophisticated hospitals that caters exclusively to the most elite spies and criminals. The only rule of Sanctuary is that no patient may ever come into contact with another patient or suffer dire consequences. Whit Roberts is also badly wounded from the Idrisil battle, having lost his ear and is now disfigured and instantly recognizable. But before the Idrisil was destroyed, Whit picked up an unusual tracking signal being focused on him. He and Jason Sterling identified this signal as one used by a black door source, or more specifically, one of the other black doors that Jason Sterling doesn't control. There are 20 doors in the black door group, and no one door knows of the activities of any of the other doors. Wit fears there may be an unknown enemy close by. He deduces that the only place that Oberlin could be safely hiding would be Sanctuary. He calls for medical extraction, and due to the privilege of his black door status, he is immediately picked up by a high-security ambulance team and taken to Sanctuary. Once he is given basic medical attention, he attacks one of the nurses whom he forces to take him to Oberlin. A violent shootout ensues, but Miley is able to protect Oberlin and safely escape from Sanctuary. Wit, however, violated the most sacred rule in the global espionage community. By committing an act of violence within Sanctuary, every Black Door agent being treated in every Sanctuary around the world was instantly given an injection of potassium chloride and killed. Meanwhile, thousands of miles away and thousands of feet deep, McAllen, Tully, Harlequin and Anton are racing to the Mariana Trench in an experimental submarine stolen from Nunkatsu Industries. Their hope is to reach the rogue Starstone and deactivate it before it releases another deadly burst of energy that is killing the Earth's immortals. And now, Chapter 17, The Briefcase, Part 1. Amsterdam, 3.45am. <laughs> They're getting closer. I can feel it. I must think. What do I hide? They can sense me anywhere. They have an immortal with them. They can attune to my mind. I have to calm my thoughts. Calm my mind. Lock them out. My mind is a vault. A vault? They will not sense me. Be calm, Nathaniel. A young boy named Nathaniel was nervously alternating between a fast walk and a full-out run. He had been secretly studying a map of Amsterdam for several months, and while the sights were alien to him, he recognized the street signs well. His face was contorted in apprehension and nervousness. His shirt was soaked with perspiration, and he was trying to gain as much ground between himself and his pursuers as possible. He knew his life depended on it. I've got to get off the main street. Too obvious here. They can spot me from a distance. Turn here. No! Schoutensteeg is a dead end. I must try to make it to Peelsteeg, few streets over. The crowds of Amsterdam's famed red light district impeded his path. Drunken bachelor parties and gawking tourists crowded the narrow cobblestone streets. His hands held a small canvas satchel that he clutched in front of him like a shield. The crowds unnerved him, and he wasn't used to the lights and sounds that surrounded him. He kept passing windows with women standing in tiny wisps of lingerie, some beckoning him to come inside, others stared at him nervously. I could go inside, I could hide with one of the women, but then I'd be trapped. If they sensed me, if they found me, I'd be done for. No, no, I must keep moving. These lights. Who are all these people? So strange, so confusing, so 
400 yards back, a tall man wearing a tight charcoal leather jacket stared into a compact pair of binoculars. I see him. He's cutting west to the Nine Streets. Get to Damrock Street now, then cut him off. Two shorter men wearing black tracksuits broke away from the man and raced down the main thoroughfare to get to the main avenue of Damrock. The taller man was called Gravelar. He placed the binoculars back into the pocket of his cargo pants and shut his eyes in concentration. Not far away now, Nathaniel ran down Peelsteep to try and get closer to the Western Canals. He rushed as fast as he could without increasing the attention he was already drawing to himself. His destination was only six or seven blocks away, but something stopped him halfway down the street. Gravelar, you can sense me, but I can sense you. You can see me, can't you? You're coming for me. You're coming close. I won't make it past Damrock. I need to think of the unexpected. I can't let you find me. I must think. Within moments, Gravlar walked down the street of Peelsteeg. The drunken crowds of stag parties were beginning to thin, and many of the windows with prostitutes in them had drawn down their shades for the evening. A few homeless were still nestled into the doorways, and a cluster of Nigerian cocaine dealers were talking outside a kebab house on the left side. The street was still occupied with the odd tourists stumbling back to their hotels. Gravlar shook his head. This isn't right. He didn't make it this far. He wouldn't hide in plain view. Not with his nerves. Gravlar stopped in the middle of Peelsteep and closed his eyes. The night had grown too late for anyone to care about a six-foot-six man standing perfectly still in the middle of the street with his eyes shut. But then his eyes flashed open and he looked left down a small alleyway covered with scaffolding on the left side and a garbage dumpster on the right. The light from the main street couldn't illuminate the entire alley, leaving the deepest part of it shrouded in darkness. Gravlar couldn't see where the alley ended. Doesn't matter. I know he's there. I know you're close by, Nathaniel. I can sense you. You're still too young to mask your thoughts. I know that you're scared. I know this place, this time, frightens you. I know that I must frighten you. But I don't want to scare you, Nathaniel. I don't even want to hurt you. But you stole something. And you have to give it back to me. You can live your life however you choose, Nathaniel. Up here, or with Leviathan. Mortal or immortal. But you must give me back what you stole. I know you're not a thief, Nathaniel. A pale, skinny young man emerged from the alley's darkness at the far end, wearing Victorian clothing and clutching his satchel. No, Gravlar, you're right. I'm not a thief. My father worked on these plans, but your group of Eden guards killed him. Before he died, he gave me the codes to these files containing the design schematics you seem to want back so badly. You know what Evangeline is building. The Eden Initiative is a farce. You tricked us. Your father threatened to betray us. You don't even know the true nature of the Eden Initiative. Come back with me and I'll tell you everything, Nathaniel. I can help you make sense of this confusion you are feeling. I'll never help you, Gravlar. And I'll never let Evangeline commit genocide. The boy ran back into the shadows and Gravlar gave immediate chase, thrusting his massive legs into full sprint. But before he could run more than a few steps, his legs pulled on a taut metal cord that bisected the alleyway. The metal cord was connected to a loose girder of scaffolding. The girder was yanked out of place, causing half of the scaffolding to collapse on top of Gravlar. Nathaniel knew this would not hold him long, and he sprinted over the rubble and ran as fast as he could to get to the Kaiserstrat Canal. The evening was soon turning into morning, and the last of the illuminated windows of barely dressed women stared back at Nathaniel. But as soon as he reached the main thoroughfare of Damrak, halfway to the canals, he saw two men in black jumpsuits running towards him. You're coming with us, little boy. You're too young to be any match for us. Nathaniel took a few steps backward. I'm older than your grandfather's. Despite his immortal blood, he knew he was physically weaker than the men sent to kill him. I won't be able to outrun them. I can't fight them, so I must outthink them. How can I use my surroundings to my advantage? Let's end this. I'll grab the little twerk. The bigger of the two thugs approached Nathaniel menacingly. His left hand was clenched into a fist, and the other hand held a telescopic nightstick. Come to Papa. Nathaniel swallowed hard. He quickly fumbled through his canvas satchel for the only weapon that he felt could save him. He yanked it out and started using it as fast as he could. What's with the camera? Nathaniel pulled out an old Nikon F2 35mm camera, held it over his head and started taking pictures of all the prostitutes that were still sitting in their windows. His flashbulb exploded frenetically as he took tens of photos holding the camera over his head and spinning around. The prostitutes in the windows immediately stood on their chairs and started screaming 
screaming and pointing at Nathaniel and the two thugs. Five bouncers raced out of the various brothels. Oi, that's illegal. You can't take pictures, you also. Give me the camera. Sorry, it's his camera. Nathaniel tossed the camera at the thug approaching him and ran towards Kaiserstrat as fast as he could. One of the bouncers gave chase, but the other four closed in on the two thugs, now holding the incriminating camera. The bouncers grabbed the camera and started beating on the two men. The one chasing Nathaniel gave up after a few blocks. But Nathaniel kept running over two more of the beautiful stone bridges that spanned the countless canals of Amsterdam before reaching Kaiserstrat. The crowds had thinned significantly as he got further away from the red light district. This neighborhood was primarily occupied by stately townhouses and smart little cafes that had long since been closed for the evening. Nathaniel raced to the far side of the Kaiserstrat bridge and looked carefully at the intersecting street sign. Herrenstrat! This is it! On the far side of the bridge, Nathaniel found a narrow set of stone steps that led down to the inky waters of the canal. He quickly ducked under the bridge and tried to slow his breathing down. He could see his breath in the cold, damp air, and he pushed his back against the dirty brick walls of the old bridge. Suddenly, a three-foot-wide section of brick came loose next to Nathaniel and started to recess into the base of Kaiserstrat Bridge. A narrow passageway was now revealed, and Nathaniel nervously stepped back and clutched his canvas satchel tightly. After a moment, a tall man with red hair and a short Van Dyke beard stepped out of the stone passageway and stared at Nathaniel. Who are you? My name is Alexander. Do you know what I am? Yes, and I want to rebel. Several hours later, Gravlar and his two men stood in the belly of a small loading barge that slowly made its way through the dark water of a canal off Van Beekstraat. The image of a man cloaked in a white robe appeared on a video screen before the three men. Do you have him? No, sir. He... he escaped. Um, sir? If I may, we did spot him last near one of the bridges on the Kaiserstrat. He might have been picked up by... Another. I put an alert with my people at the train station, airport, and bus terminal. We didn't get him, but don't worry. He can't leave Amsterdam. But you didn't get him. No, sir. No, sir. Gravla? <laughs> Gravla moved back to face the screen. The white-robed figure on the screen had yet to move a muscle. I warned eventually not to trust that little rat. We don't know how much of the schematics he was able to obtain, but if he reveals our holy mission too soon, then all will be lost. I understand, my lord. We need to get you out of Amsterdam quietly, to some place where your skills can be more effectively utilized. Nathaniel's friends and family on the surface have been dead for a century. He'll need support to survive. He'll need sension. Gravla? I think it's time that you paid the island of Manhattan a visit. The screen faded to darkness, leaving the room in which Gravlar stood to be pitch black. But he needed no light to find his way to the control room of the barge. Outside, along the bank of the filthy canal, a 31-year-old heroin addict slumped down against the side of an aluminum utility shed. He watched the derelict barge glide down the length of the canal and then smoothly drop below the surface of the water, leaving the faintest trail of bubbles leading out to the North Sea. One day later, New York City, Sutton Manor. I understand, but just because an Ankatsu facility has been destroyed doesn't mean we need to assume the worst. Of course, no. Bribe somebody on the inside to collect radiation levels. That alone should tell us if there are any bodies, at least of the immortals. Maybe that will also give us some clues as to what happened. Ascension out. I woke up alone in bed. I'm sorry, Okoro. I just... I just have so much on my mind right now. I thought you might care for some tea. At two in the morning? Wouldn't coffee or amphetamines be more appropriate? Wasn't it Pinheiro who said, Where there's tea, there's hope. <sighs> I think I'd rather get advice from Julius Caesar these days. Or maybe I'll just attempt to interpret the tea leaves at the bottom of my cup. Nonsense. I prepared some oolong tea. It's still your favorite, I take it. It is indeed. And you brought out the good china, no less. You certainly know how to make a man feel underdressed. 
It's Mother's set from the early Edo period. It's absolutely beautiful. Why haven't I seen this before? You don't exactly entertain at Sutton Manor. Did Napoleon hold dinner parties while in Elba? Maybe Waterloo would have been successful had he brought his Limoges china with him. I think we all need reminders from the past to provoke the strength that lies within all of us. The cup you're holding is almost 400 years old. Lecturing me through pottery, are you? Inspiring. I hope. I don't need lectures. I need information. The blood of everyone who died that day we left Leviathan is on my hands. And if I don't find a way to stop the signal, then everyone I've led to the surface will die too. You never intended to kill anybody, Senshin. No? And look what I've become. A pacifist who is now a field commander in a war of attrition. How selfish have we all been? Why is our freedom more important than the immortals who died when the virus leaked out? Times change, and these are deadlier times. Weapons have become more efficient, and so have the people that use them. Exactly. How efficient I was in killing half of our immortal population. Thousands of the most brilliant minds on the planet. People that would live for a millennia to come. You never anticipated genocide. Everybody inside Leviathan knows that. So that's exactly what happened, didn't it? Akora, we had everything we could possibly desire in Leviathan. Money, food, the counsel and companionship of the best minds on the planet. And most importantly, we had a thousand lifetimes to ponder life's deepest questions. But we had to squabble. We had to piss it all away in the name of freedom. Maybe Evangeline is right, that man is too flawed to have the benefits of immortality. It had nothing to do with squabbling. Evangeline was perverting the Eden Initiative into an assassination program. She was trying to devise a way to enslave mankind. We never proved it. We didn't have to. Man, both mortal and immortal, is meant to be free. The fact that we couldn't leave Leviathan freely was reason enough to start a rebellion. And when our friends started disappearing, well then, mutiny was only a matter of time. True enough, but what if this is all wrong? What if I betrayed John and Teresa Orsel by sacrificing their daughter, McCallan, for a pointless crusade? She wasn't their daughter. She was created to be a tool in a war that left no alternatives. They never thought of her that way. Thankfully, her parents and Amelia gave her a strong enough backbone that kept her alive this far. I wonder how much she knows. If she's discovered she was a genetic experiment of our rebellion. A surrogate to do our bidding. Our bidding was always the freedom for all immortals. Except her. Senshin, where is McAllen Orsel right now? You know I can't talk about the mission. It needs a s Transmission code Delta Alpha 464. My god. Who is it? It's a code of transmission from Europe. I need to respond to this. I'd like to stay. I'm sorry, Koro. The code indicates this is restricted. Sension. Koro, I'm sorry, but you know what's happening. We both know we've had leaks recently. As you wish. You are our leader. Ikoro held Senshin's stare for an instant, then rose from her chair quietly and left the room. Senshin waited until he heard the doors click close, before turning his chair to the rightmost of the five computer monitors on his desk. He activated the secure communications link, link and the image of a 30-year-old bespectacled man with red hair and a tightly cropped beard appeared on the screen. Alexander, my god, this is a surprise. Hello, Senshin. How are you, my friend? How's Amsterdam treating you? Not well, I'm afraid. I was expecting someone else on a secure link. You've retired from the rebellion. You and Rebecca were going to start a family. I don't want to bring a child into this world. I think your wife may have something to say about that. Rebecca's gone, Senshin. She died in bed a few days ago. The damn signal killed her. I'm so, so sorry, Alex. I had no idea- I thought we weren't supposed to die, Senshin. That was the promise, wasn't the it? The person that made that promise is 35,000 feet underwater. Senshin, I don't care about Evangeline anymore. Alex. Why did you use the secure link? You've retired from the rebellion. When you lost your leg escaping Leviathan, you paid your price. I told you and Rebecca to settle into married life 50 years ago. It was very nice for a while. We had a beautiful townhouse overlooking the canals on the Kaiserstraat. I was quite surprised to find that domestic life suited me. Days being filled with going to the local markets to pick out eggs and cheese. And then... There were the beautiful flower gardens. Rebecca always loved Amsterdam's flower gardens. Uh, Alexander, I know. And what of you and Okoro? <sighs> Things are still... tense here. Still won't let your guard down, will you? Still carrying the guilt of what happened when we escaped? Don't you know Alexander, that we've been best friends for a century. I know there's something you're not telling me. Something besides Rebecca. Why did you contact me on a secure link? It's a pretty open secret that a traitor is suspected of being in your midst. I haven't heard if it's New York, Mumbai, or one of the other rebellion clusters, but 
they want to take any chances contacting you. What I have to tell you is too important. What is it? Another immortal has escaped from Leviathan, a young boy named Nathaniel. He became immortal just over a century ago. He wants to join the Rebellion. How the hell did he get to the surface without Evangeline knowing? Well, that's just it. She does know. And she sent a team of assassins to kill him as soon as he walked onto the surface. I'll ask again. How did he get to the surface? He used the keyhole. That's impossible. The keyhole network was shut down decades ago. No, Ascension. We just haven't been testing it for decades. Need I remind you? After the rebellion, Evangeline had all the keyholes redirected to force materialization in front of a firing squad, or worse. She left one open underwater at 30,000 feet. Neither prospect strikes me as worth the risk required of testing. For this one boy, it did. What are you talking about? Ascension. Apparently, the Eden Initiative is reaching its culmination. The Eden Initiative? The establishment of a harmonious progressive society where intellectualism triumphs over poverty and war? Utopia's been reached, has it? Forgive me, Alexander, but the last time I conversed with the homeless man I saw sleeping on a grate outside Washington Heights, he hadn't received his share of ambrosia and spiritual fulfillment. Surprisingly, spare change seemed to be the focus of his intellectual efforts under the Eden... Attention, stop. It's more serious than you know. Explain. You and I always suspected that the Eden Initiative was something of a ruse. That Evangeline had become so disgusted with the nature of mankind that she would seek to exterminate mortal man and replace it with her own enlightened immortal brethren. That or enslave mankind to serve her higher purpose. Well, it was just a theory. We were never able to prove it. Until now. This young boy, Nathaniel, brings with him dark news. Nathaniel Pratt? Son of Victor Pratt, the metallurgist. Evangeline always had his father working on her most secret projects. Yes, precisely. It would appear Nathaniel used his father's passwords to steal the schematics to a, a device that Evangeline is building. He says this device has been her all-consuming obsession. She has told her most trusted advisors that this machine will save the world. I'm accessing the schematics now. Oh my god. This device is utterly massive. It must be the size of a cruise ship. Ascension, whatever this is, it's something that Evangeline has been trying to build for hundreds of years. It looks like a giant Christmas tree. No, no it doesn't. It looks like a weapon. A missile of some sort. And from the size of it, it looks like it could wipe out an entire continent. Ascension, ask yourself, what would Evangeline want to do with a bomb? But in another part of Sutton Manor, Ikoro entered her medical laboratory and locked the door behind her. She stopped and looked around the room furtively before sitting at her desk and taking off her watch. She then held it close to her ear. Whatever it is, it's not good for the Rebellion or for mankind. I knew she harbored resentment for her treatment in Sumner Talk, but I sincerely believe that a thousand years might be enough time for her to get over her childhood issues. Apparently not. Uh, Ascension... What are we going to do about the boy? What do you mean? Well, I obviously can't keep him safe here. I don't have facilities of a sudden manner. There are many people looking for him and I'm retired. I understand, my friend. You've given more than your share to the Rebellion. I'll send a private jet to pick him up in 12 hours. The Condor? No, the Condor is in use right now, but I'll send a private aircraft over. I'm concerned about leaks, I understand, but nobody in the Rebellion knows of this boy's existence or Evangeline's weapon besides the two of us, and we will keep it that way. I'll pick him up personally and keep him somewhere safe until we can integrate him into the Rebellion. You're going to make it all okay? Yes, I'm going to make it all okay. Black Door, this is Ikuro. Senshin is on the move. Beijing, China, West Railway Station. Two figures, a slender Asian woman and a man whose left hand was tightly bandaged, stepped inside the massive stone building. The woman walked confidently, but the man kept scanning the central station nervously. Do you mind telling me what the hell we're doing? There are police crawling in every corner of this place. Why are we in a giant train station? To take a train. Oh, thank you, little Miss Fortune Cookie, for that brilliant glimpse into the obvious. But my question is, why are we in the most public place in Beijing, with cameras and policemen stationed everywhere? I thought we were supposed to keep a low profile. <sighs> 
Oberlin St. Clair. Unless you've been arrested previously in China, the police have no idea what you look like. That's why I rushed to pick you up after the crash of the Idrisil before anyone could ID you. But you said Black Door had connections everywhere. Those guys kept me prisoner in that blimp for weeks. I'm sure they had time to snap a Polaroid of me. They could have sent my image to every law enforcement group in the free world. Stop and think, Oberlin St. Clair. Why do you think there are so many policemen stationed here? Looking for us. No, you idiot. They are looking for Black Door, specifically Wit Roberts. He broke the code. He opened fire in Sanctuary, trying to kill me and capture you. That makes him one of the most wanted men on the planet. These policemen aren't looking for us, because Black Door has turned its back on the rest of the world. Every member of Black Door in any sanctuary hospital in the world has been executed by now. Most other intelligence agencies, and criminal organizations I might add, are also trying to find Whit Roberts and collect a bounty and make an example of him. The fact that we're seeing this level of police presence can only mean one thing. What's that? That Whit Roberts must have escaped from Sanctuary, is on the loose, and he's probably looking for us right now. Okay, but that doesn't explain why we're in a train station. I told you, to catch a train. I know, to catch a train. But my sense is you could probably afford cab fare if you wanted to drive by Tiananmen Square for a scenic tour. We're not going to Tiananmen. Square. Then may I ask where we are going? Of course. Tibet. What? Tibet? Why the hell are we going to Tibet? I can't go to Tibet. Why not? For a moment, the question stunned Oberlin as he realized that he had no good answer to Miley's question. Well, because I... I... I don't have anything to wear. You whine like a Park Avenue woman getting ready for a lunch date with her girlfriends at Lister. Ha! I do not. I heard it's very cold in Tibet, and I'm in no position to be catching the flu on top of everything else that Turn I- left up here. Besides, I've got to find Tully, my best friend Jeffrey Tully. God knows what the Black Door Group has done to him. Black Door Group doesn't have your friend Jeffrey Tully. How do you know? Miley stopped in her tracks and turned to face Oberlin. Because you are still alive. Whit Roberts wouldn't have risked his life and sacrificed the life of every Black Door agent in Sanctuary to get you alive if they already had Jeffrey Tully. Black Door wants to find him because they think that will lead them to the Immortals. You? You're just bait. Valuable bait, but bait nonetheless. As long as they're chasing you, it means that Black Door doesn't have what it wants. Jeffrey Tully doesn't need to be your concern right now. Survival, on the other hand, should be. Now here, take these. These are your papers. You and I are Mr. and Mrs. Stuart Clenahan. This is a fancy-looking ticket. A tangula. What sort of train are we going on? See for yourself. Miley and Oberlin St. Clair rounded a corner in Beijing West Railway Centre and walked through a set of large white double doors that read tangula in red block letters. Oh my god! It's beautiful! The two of them stood before the most luxurious train ever built, the Tangula, created while China was being awarded the privilege of hosting the 2008 Summer Olympics. It was designed to take the world's most well-heeled passengers on an unparalleled journey from Beijing to Lhasa, the capital of Tibet. Operating at one of the highest altitudes for train service on Earth, supplemental oxygen is piped through sumptuous cabins. The train itself was beautiful, keeping the familiar silhouette of a bullet train, but Oberlin immediately noticed that the giant oversized windows took up almost half of the siding of the passenger cars. According to the brochure that Oberlin held in his hand, the train was comprised of a total of 15 cars, with 12 dedicated passenger cars, containing only four suites each. Miley approached the train confidently, but was immediately met by a thin, younger man. Good afternoon, madam. My name is Chen, and I will be the butler for your cabin. Please, allow me to check you in and take care of your luggage. Certainly. The two of them were led inside the fourth passenger car and were given a suite facing out on the left side. Oberlin's jaw dropped as he took in the exquisite accommodations. High lacquer burled wood made up the beautiful cabinetry that seemed to glow when kissed by the sunlight streaming in through the windows. Oberlin raised an eyebrow when he noticed that the only bed in the room was a full size and seemed to be embedded in a soft leather headboard. The ensuite bathroom was encased in a type of marble that Oberlin had only seen once in a museum in Florence. Um, I don't want to seem ungrateful, but this is a bit over the top, isn't it? It's fine. Well, uh, 
Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit more than fine. But I still get the feeling we should be keeping a low profile. I know what you said earlier about- No, Oberlin. The people that would be looking for us would be checking all the regional trains that have tickets that can be easily purchased through a vending machine anonymously. They certainly would be checking all of the airports. But as you can see, the Tangela is a luxury train which customizes the entire check-in process. It possesses its own platform in the train station away from the majority of the local trains, keeping us generally out of view. And it only accommodates 96 passengers, which makes it so small and exclusive as to not be worth the manpower to investigate our forged identities. If you say so. Oberlin plopped down in one of the reclining chairs that faced the window. The excitement of boarding the Tangula had allowed him to temporarily forget the phantom pain of his missing finger. Explain to me again why we're going to Tibet. It has to do with the briefcase that you stole from Whit Roberts and the Black Door Group. Okay, now please back up. Before we broke out of Sanctuary, you told me that the Chinese government discovered a star stone being held by monks in Tibet. You said they brought it to a high security facility in Keishan, but then they somehow lost it? Now, I've lost me share of keys and wallets, but could you explain to me how you lose an alien artifact that weighs over 50,000 tons? It was stolen. Stolen? By whom? Dr. Sui and a group of scientists and mercenaries. I thought Dr. Hisui was an astronomer that worked in the Chinese space program. He did. He was. But he was also the head of Section 9, the division of Chinese intelligence that was formed to investigate the Star Stone and decipher alien communications. After failing to learn anything about the alien artifact, the Chinese wanted to bury the Star Stone along with tons of spent nuclear waste in a disposal facility somewhere in Mongolia. Dr. Sui pleaded with the government to give him more time to examine the alien artifact, but no one listened. Then, one night in his study, a very peculiar visitor called upon the good doctor. Sui thought he was alone reading, but then heard a knock knock on the door door to his study. This unnerved him greatly, because he lived alone in his house and no other person held the key. And when thou hast poured libations, and hast prayed, as is fitting, then give thy friend also the cup of honey-sweet wine, that he may pour, since he too, I ween, prays to the immortals. For all men have need of the gods. Howbeit he is the younger, of like age with myself. Wherefore to thee first will I give the golden cup. Who's there? Dr. Swede gingerly rose from his leather club chair and slowly made his way to the desk at the far end of the room. He kept his eyes on the study door as his fingers fumbled through the top drawer before they found a loaded Mauser C96 pistol tucked deep within a hidden pocket. Swee backed up a step so that his back was against the far wall and the pistol was pointed at the door. For the last time, I said, who's there? I warn you, I am armed. I'm sure you are, but you really have no need. Show yourself. Who are you? A tall man wearing a white robe with a white hood entered the room. Dr. Swee couldn't see the man's face behind the long hood, but it seemed like the figure was staring directly at him. For a split second, Swee wondered if a ghost had entered his room. My name is Benu, and I can assure you that I mean no harm. What are you doing in my house? I've only come to speak with you. I've come quite a long way. Are you aware that I have an office? Yes, but I must admit that I find the decor of government offices to be a bit uninspired. Not to mention the intrusion of security cameras and armed guards. I'm sure you must feel the same way. Hard to be reaching for the stars when you're weighed down by the myopic intentions of a military that won't look beyond its own borders. What do you want? You have something I want. Something I need, actually. I have nothing to give. You must... I must have the Starstone. I don't know what you're talking about. I've never you heard took of... took something that didn't belong to you. Something that belongs to my people. Something that you must give back. Who are your people? We are part of something called Leviathan. What is Leviathan? Leviathan is a collective of inspired minds that have chosen to spend eternity with one another in a very special place. A very private place. Free from any distraction or want. We live in a fortress. A small city deep under the ocean. There, we have the ability to ponder the most challenging scientific questions of our time. And we have the ability to do research that you couldn't imagine. What do you mean, eternity? I, and all of my brethren within Leviathan, am immortal. 
Dr. Sui raised the gun higher to point directly at Benu's head. That is preposterous. You are a madman. I demand you leave my house now. You have trespassed Don't without- toy with me, Doctor. I am exactly who I say I am. You don't believe me? The signal you detected was directed at the Seraxian Nebula near the center of our Milky Way galaxy. The frequency that you used to decipher the signal was 135.56.2. Sorax sent a return signal four days after receiving a transmission from Earth. As I said, I am exactly who I said I am. And I need the Starstone returned to Leviathan. But the Starstone does not belong to you. It was stolen from a group of rebellious Tibetan monks that were planning it to- It never belonged to the Tibetan monks. That was not a temple that you invaded. It was a transmission station used and built by Leviathan centuries ago. The monks discovered the cave and chose to occupy it. Somehow, through meditation, they were able to partially commune with the Starstone and draw strength from the signal. But between their handling and your government's experimentation on it, the Starstone had been weakened and damaged. My people need to use it to feed now, to feed our immortality. Mr. Bennu, I am not a fool. The carvings near the Starstone were quite clear. I read the hieroglyphics. There was a single word that stood out. It said, extermination. You impress me, Doctor. You've already learned more than any person outside of Leviathan ever has. This isn't easy to explain, but I implore you to trust me. As you surmised, Leviathan has studied the Earth and beyond for hundreds of years. As you've already detected, we have the ability to speak to other worlds, in this case with Sorax. We have reason to believe the Soraxians are mounting an attack on the Earth. And while their initial intentions may have been benevolent, they have been visiting our planet for thousands of years, experimenting with different viruses and weapons that would exterminate mankind or worse, turn us into a slave race. But we at Leviathan believe we can fight this invasion. We have developed technology that could save humanity, but we ourselves must live long enough to deploy it. And now, sadly, we are in danger of exterminating ourselves. We must have the Starstone to perpetuate our immortality. That's impossible. An alien invasion? Immortals walking the Earth? This is absurd. You saw for yourself that someone on this Earth was clearly communicating with someone on another world. Did you think that person wouldn't come and find you? Ask yourself, how did I know about the Starstone? How did I know where you found it? How do I know what the hieroglyphic meant? You doubt my immortality? I'm a thousand years old. I watched the Song Dynasty rise to power and give way to the Yuan Dynasty, and then to the Ming and the Qing after that. Take this coin. Have it analyzed. You'll find that it's quite rare and over 800 years old. I could give you one for each of your ancestors. Sui held the ancient coin in his hand and made a tight fist. What is it you want me to do? Take control of Section 9. Organize them to steal the Starstone away from the Chinese government before they bury it away forever. Once you have it in control- That's totally impossible. Steal the most valuable artifact ever found by man, one that weighs 50,000 tons? Stop and think, Dr. Sui. Your Section 9 has already killed almost everyone with knowledge of the Starstone. I should thank you for that. Only a handful outside of your group know of its existence, so not many will notice its sudden disappearance. And those that do know have slated the Starstone for waste disposal. They want to bury it in the ground away from everyone. But, but it's just impossible. I didn't say it wouldn't be dangerous, but I promise you, it's not impossible. In fact, nothing is impossible. It's merely a question of having the right resource. Why should I do this? You're making me commit to an act of treason. Do you understand how the Chinese government deals with its enemies? If they don't kill me, they'll torture and execute my family and my friends. Leviathan can help you. We can protect them and save them. How? We can get them out of China and someplace safe. You can join us in Leviathan with complete safety from the rest of the world. If you still have any doubts about my intentions or origins, tomorrow at work, a laboratory assistant that you've never seen before will give you a folder. Within the folder will be a series of numbers. Those numbers represent a series of bank accounts in San Marino that have been opened in your name. You'll find the total amount deposited is over 600 million. You can use those funds as you see fit to incentivize the other members of Section 9 to help you in your mission as well as payment for your own services. In addition, you'll find a business card for a gentleman that works for Nankatsu Industries in their submersibles division. They have begun work on a revolutionary submarine called the Hai-Ten-Chi. They have a team of mercenaries that can help you. Needless to say, he'll be expecting your call. The money, 
It's generous, but but I can't. If the money is not noble enough a reason, then let me give you another one. My benefactor, Evangeline, has sent me here to make you an offer. Do this for us. Claim back our Starstone. Use the vessel from Nankatsu to deliver the Starstone to us at Leviathan. And you and your comrades from Section 9 will be given the gift of immortality. Think of it, Dr. Swee. As you try to peer through cloud cover with clumsy radio telescopes, I could give you the access to the entire galaxy. And more importantly, your lifetime and many more to accumulate all the knowledge a scientist could ever dream of. Immortality. Money. Scientific tools. I don't know. Then think of your country. Think of all the countries. There is a storm coming, one that could obliterate mankind. Will you stand idle? Will you not act? Yes, but immortality? It's not natural. Any more natural than enduring lethal radiation to rid oneself of cancer? Any more natural than pumping up full of artificial vitamins to try to catch a few more years of existence? Man's lifespan has been expanding ever since recorded history. There are no absolute laws in nature. Immortality is simply another evolution in man's history. Aging is a disease, Dr. Shui, like any other viral infection. It can be cured. No magic. And soon the thought of dying will seem as remote as catching smallpox. Imagine having enough time to do everything you've ever wanted to do in life. But my country, I cannot steal from my own country. This isn't a question of patriotism. We need the Starstone to defend mankind. This is a question of the survival of the human race. I will consider your request. Consider it well. Remember, the fate of the world rests with you now, Dr. Swee. Tell no one of Leviathan. It has and must always exist in secret, and I was never here. And with that, Bennu retreated back into the darkness. So what happened? Did Dr. Sui steal the Star Stone? Dr. Sui used the money given to him by Bennu to bribe the remaining members of Section 9 to help steal the Star Stone from the Chinese government while it was in transit to the radioactive waste containment facility in Mongolia. They were assisted by Nankatsu Industries and their in-house mercenary army. Some reports state that the train that was carrying the Star Stone apparently encountered a freak earthquake that swallowed the train, the tracks, the crew, and the Star Stone. However, some other reports say that a stealth blimp, very much like the one on which you were kept prisoner, was briefly seen over Mongolia, airlifting a massive crate before it disappeared into the only cloud in the sky. Nankatsu was the one that created these blimps! Exactly! Once the Star Stone was delivered to one of their secret facilities outside Qingdao, China, it was locked away and never seen again. And what happened to Dr. Sui? I'm afraid, like the Star Stone, after he reached Qingdao, he was never seen or heard from again. Excuse me, madam, sir. Dinner is now being served in the dining car. Your choice, a venison in a Sai pork reduction sauce, or Chinese catfish, flash fried with lemongrass and Thai chilies. Thank you. We'll be there shortly. Oh my god, me mouth is watering. I'm starving. Let's go now. One moment, Oberlin St. Clair. I'm afraid you're not properly dressed. What are you talking Could about? Could you help me with my zipper? I, um, uh... Sure. Miley walked over and stood between Oberlin's legs and spun around. Oberlin's stout fingers couldn't easily grip the tiny zipper, but he managed to pull it all the way down a few inches below the small of her back. Miley stood and strode over to the closet, where her clothes had already been unpacked by the cabin steward and hung properly. She gave the slightest shimmy in her shoulders, and her red silk dress fell to her feet. Standing in only a black thong and heels, she stepped over her dress and scrutinized the selection in her closet. Oberlin said nothing. Hmm. I want to wear the Versace, but it's wrinkled. I suppose the Alexander McQueen will be fine. Oberlin still said nothing. Well, don't just sit there. You've got a jacket, tie, and shirt hanging in the far closet. Hurry on. I'd like to arrive early enough to enjoy a cocktail. Man, if dinner sounded good, I can't wait to see what's for dessert. listening to the Leviathan Chronicles by Christoph Leputka. For more episodes and information, log on to www.leviathanchronicles.com.
Hello, everyone. This is Christoph, your author and creator of the Leviathan Chronicles. And I have to start by wishing everybody Happy New Year. I know you're going, hello, Christoph. It is a new year. Where is my Leviathan episode? Unfortunately, I have been a little bit late with episode 17, The Briefcase Part 1. And that is, unfortunately, the nature of audio drama, where despite our best efforts, sometimes the technical process of creating audio drama uh, is a little bit more time-consuming than a lot of the other podcasts that you listen to. In this case, we had to move around some of the different actors, and unfortunately, there was a little bit of a delay getting certain scenes in Chapter 17 done. But once again, Happy New Year. So far, this has been an awesome year for Leviathan. We have now 700 people registered on the website. If you haven't registered, please, please, please do. It really, really helps for some reasons that I'll talk about a little bit later in the soapbox. iTunes, 43 reviews on iTunes. Whatever magic mojo is going on in 2009, it's hitting Leviathan big time because our audience has been increasing. iTunes now has 43 reviews on it. That has been so helpful that it's actually put us into their feature section for literature under the art section of podcasting. And there's different subcategories of podcasts within iTunes. Right now we're in the literature section, but if you're really hot in literature, you get to move up to arts and then maybe general podcasting. So please, if you have a chance, drop a review on iTunes under Leviathan Chronicles. It really, really helps. And I so sincerely appreciate it. So I hope everybody's holidays were great. I got the chance to go out to Santa Fe. Santa Fe is one of my favorite cities in America. It just has this great spiritual vibe to it. Uh, It's got some really good skiing in Taos, and I got to do a little snowboarding, which is uh, one of my top three favorite things to do behind scuba diving and paragliding. Most of all, what I love about it is the food. Oh, Southwestern food. It is so fantastic. I love the Mesa. And most of all, I love the chilies. For those of you that know me, I have a chili fetish. I love hot peppers. And I love the spicy food in Santa Fe. And I've taken my spicy fetish so far here in New York that I actually joined this eating club called the Pepperheads. And it's this really cool group that gets together once a month and has a, a dinner party at a different restaurant, usually like Indian or Sri Lankan or someplace that has really spicy food. And I've gone to a couple of the gatherings and they've just been so much fun. It's such a wonderful forgotten pleasure to sit down with 10 or 12 strangers and simply have wonderful, polite dinner conversation. And at this point, my spice tolerance has gotten like New Delhi hot. And I've been cooking a lot with habaneros, and they've been really, really great. But then on the internet, I found out about this other pepper. And I thought habaneros were as balls of the wall as you could get. But I found out that there is another chili that is about 10 times hotter called the Dorset Naga pepper. This is the forbidden chili pepper. And I was all excited about it. I'm going to get this pepper. I'm going to cook with it, do all these wonderful things. Turns out you really can't get it. In America, it was somehow grown in the UK, and for whatever reason, you can't seem to import it here. You can get the seeds here, but you can't get the pepper. So I was having dinner in India town, and I was going to one of the bodegas, and and I see the guy there, and they had all these lentils and spices, and it was really cool. And I go to the guy, I go, excuse me, do you have the Dorset Naga pepper? He was like, shh, come in the back, I show you. And so this guy like takes me in the back to like his secret stash, and he's got all these plants there that he's growing. He's like, not ready. Come back in two weeks. So so I come back in two weeks and they're not ready. It takes like four weeks till the plants finally bear fruit. And then he finally sold me like 10 or 15 of them. And it was like this great forbidden crack rock of chili that was so insanely spicy. And I'm not one of those guys that like, yes, I want to be macho and go with the hottest heat that I can handle. I, the heat is important, but the flavor is also important. And Boy, did this baby pack a punch. So 2009, Christoph gets his forbidden chili pepper, gets to go to Santa Fe and go skiing and hang out in a naked spa. Long story about that. And Leviathan's audience is doubling and we're kicking ass on iTunes. Oh my God, is 2009 great? Here's how it's going to get even better. I talked before about the importance of registering on the website and helping me show how big my audience is getting. That's going to come into play a lot for Comic-Con. New York's Comic-Con is coming 
February 6th, 7th, and 8th. And Leviathan Chronicles is going to have its own booth. I have an unbelievably fantastic group of friends that have been so selfless and so generous with their time and energy to help me set up this booth for Leviathan Chronicles. And we kind of talked about how we want to do it. How do you do a booth for a podcast at a comic book convention? What I think we're going to do is try and create kind of an underwater feel and have listening stations like four or five beanbags set up with iPods where people can listen to different chapters. We're going to have some CDs to give away. We've got some t-shirts to give away. So if anybody is in the New York area and wants to stop by, I'd love to shake your hands, give you a hug, give you a t-shirt, and tell you how much I appreciate your listenership. So I'm also hoping to do some networking with some of the other avenues of entertainment that are at Comic-Con. And I have no idea if I'm smoking crack on this, but our section that Leviathan Chronicles booth is in is actually going to be right by the video game section there. We're across from Namco. uh, We're right near Ubisoft. And it would be really interesting to talk to some of the other video game people there about the possibility of doing some sort of a video game with Leviathan Chronicles. I don't really know if that's at all realistic. My sense is probably it might not be, but I really feel like it's something you got to try. And that also goes for talking with some of the comic book companies. Obviously, Marvel's going to be there. DC is going to be there. I have been exploring the idea of trying to make Leviathan Chronicles a graphic novel. So once again, you are absolutely invited to come to Comic-Con, Jacob Javits Center, February 6th, 7th, and 8th. And I would love to see you all there. All right, guys, I'm going to sign off. We will have Chapter 18, The Briefcase Part 2, coming out to you guys shortly. And now the crazy thing, and I can't believe I'm saying this, there are only eight more episodes left of season one. We've got some great stuff in store. We now know who our traitor within the rebellion is. The big finale is coming soon, and I think you guys are going to seriously, seriously dig it. Okay, this is Christoph signing off. Thank you all again for making 2008 one of the best years of my life. Thank you for making 2009 looking like it's going to be the year of Leviathan. You guys totally and utterly rock and I will see you all in two there are many things that we can all do that may help stop the spread of the coronavirus but one thing we can all do is to have a plan in case you do get sick first Consult with your health care provider for more information about monitoring your health for symptoms suggestive of COVID-19. Second, stay in touch with others by phone or email. You may need to ask for help from friends, family, neighbors, community health workers, or more if you become sick. And finally, determine who can care for you if your caregiver gets sick. For more information, go to cdc.gov and... Be well, everyone.